Before we start the program, I want to introduce you to an event that's coming up this August. The Loma Linda Institute of Worship is offering a worship leadership certificate to help leaders and pastors take their congregation's worship experience to the next level. This August 9-12 through 12 event will include presenters Randy Roberts, Adriana Pereira, Nicholas Zork, Wayne Buckner, Richard Hickam, and more, and provide the opportunity to perform on stage with Steve Green and the Heritage Singers. Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to LLIW.net to register. Welcome to the Loma Linda University Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you will be blessed by the message. Today, we're going to talk about an issue that all of us deal with, but none of us like to talk about, and that's sin. You know, sin is kind of like a bad haircut. Everybody sees it, but nobody mentions it. I remember hearing a story about three pastors who went on a fishing trip together, and there they were on the lake, but the fish weren't biting. So one of them said, why don't we take this opportunity to do what the apostle James tells us to do, which is confess our sins to each other and pray for one another. Would you have liked to be on that boat? They agreed, so the the first pastor started. He said, the sin I need to confess is lust. Every once in a while, I'll go to the beach and watch the pretty girls walk by. I know it got quiet in here. (laughs) The second pastor said, well, the sin that I need to confess is gambling. You know, I, I just can't stop myself from going to the racetrack and placing bets on the horses. And then the two of them, they turned to the third man, and they could see that he was hesitating a little bit. So they said, hey, this is a safe space. There's nobody else around. Just share what's on your heart. So that third man said to them, well... The sin that I struggle with is gossiping. I just can't keep a secret. (laughs) See, that's why we don't like to share our sins. (laughs) No. The reality is that all of us struggle with this. All of us struggle with brokenness. All of us struggle with sin and the effects of sin that are destructive on our lives, like loss and loneliness and isolation and despair. All of us struggle with this. Pastors struggle with this. Prophets struggle with this. All people struggle with this. Every single one of us are broken. All of us in this room, those of you joining us online, we are all broken people. And you see that mirrored in the experience of the heroes of faith in Scripture. All of them are broken people. David, David murdered someone, committed adultery. You see see, um, Moses, Moses also killed someone. We're all broken people. So can we begin today just by admitting that, admitting our brokenness? They say that confession is good for the soul. So would you join me in a moment of group confession this morning? Would you repeat after me? I am broken. I am a sinner. Is that a little uncomfortable to say out loud? That was a little more awkward for me than I thought it would be. Because there's some shame associated with admitting our brokenness. So so we like to pretend that we aren't broken. The temptation is for us to put on a mask and act like everything is okay. We like to think that if we look good on the outside, it doesn't really matter what's going on on the inside. But the truth is, 
Just because we ignore our brokenness doesn't make it go away. It's kind of like a cavity. You know, I recently got a filling, and it's incredible how long you can ignore a cavity for. Now, before the dentists in this room get angry with me, I'm not saying that we should ignore cavities, okay? I'm just saying that when they're small, it's possible. It's possible. And even as they get larger, we can figure out ways to live around it, right? Chew on the other side of our mouth. Avoid cold foods. Avoid sweet foods. You can tell that I've done this before. Don't tell my dentist. But just because we ignore the cavity doesn't make it go away. It's still there, and often it grows. I saw this demonstrated in a very dramatic fashion when I was on a mission trip to Haiti. I was assisting a dentist treating a patient whose tooth had completely crumbled. Apparently, the cavity had grown so large that it had hollowed out the inside of his tooth, and all that was left was an empty shell. So the next time he bit down hard on that tooth, it shattered. And that's what brokenness does to us. It hollows us out. That's why author and pastor Peter Scazzaro writes in his book, The Emotionally Healthy Leader. When we deny our pain, losses, and feelings year after year, we become less and less human. We transform slowly into empty shells with smiley faces painted on them. Have you ever felt that way before? Like an empty shell with a smiley face on top? I know I have. There's been times when I felt like I just had to fake it. Just pretend that everything is okay. When in reality, I was dying inside. So throughout this series, we're going to address the brokenness in our lives that keeps us from being So if that's your experience, the good news is you're not alone. Every single one of us are broken. And the even better news is there is healing available for us because God makes us whole. See, that's our series in a nutshell. Sin breaks our souls, but God makes us whole. Sin breaks our souls. The reason why there is suffering and pain and loss in this world is because of sin, because we have separated ourselves away from God. You know, in Genesis chapter 3, we're told about the very first sin that humanity committed. God tells Adam and Eve, don't eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge and good and evil. Don't eat it. Stay away from it. It's better for you to stay away. But Adam and Eve ignore his warning, and they choose to eat of the fruit anyway. They choose to trust human wisdom over divine word. Come on now. They choose to remove God from the throne of their lives and place themselves on top. They choose independence from God. And that choice for separation from God breaks our souls. And the rest of Scripture is the story of how God is trying to restore us to wholeness again. So in this series, we're going to look at three three healing miracles of Jesus. 
to discover how God mends our souls and makes us whole. How God mends our souls and makes us whole. So that's what this series is all about. And I know that a lot of times we think of Jesus' healing miracles as more physical miracles, right? That when Jesus healed people, he healed their bodies. But his miracles were always more holistic than that. That's why Ellen White, in Ministry of Healing, writes, The burden of disease and wretchedness and sin Jesus came to remove. It was his mission to bring to men complete, complete restoration. He came to give them health and peace and perfection of character. From him flowed a stream of healing power, and in body and mind and soul, men were made whole. Notice that she writes that the healing power that flowed from Jesus was meant to make body, mind, and soul whole. And we've talked about this before, that the biblical concept of soul is not something that exists separate from the body, but it's the encapsulation of body, mind, and spirit that makes a living soul. So when Ellen White says that that Jesus made their souls whole, what she's saying is that Jesus healed them inside and out. And the first example of this that we're going to look at today is found in Luke chapter 5, in the passage that was just read by Ken. In Luke chapter 5, verses 17 through 26. So if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open them up, or you can turn them on if you have the device, to Luke chapter 5, verses 17 through 26. And what you're going to notice about this passage is that Jesus doesn't just heal this man's body. He also forgives this man's sin. So how does that happen? Luke chapter 5, starting with verse 17. Check it out. Luke writes, on one of those days, as Jesus was teaching, now I need to pause here because two verses prior to this one, Luke writes that, that people had discovered that Jesus could heal the sick. So people started to gather from everywhere. And it was on one of those days when the crowds were gathering that Jesus was teaching. He continues, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. So he had gathered so many crowds that it was now starting to get the religious leaders' attention. And this is significant because, notice, in this kind of situation, usually the the local scribe would show up and deal with it. There were, there were scribes for every village and every town. So the local scribe would usually deal with it and maybe send a report if it was important enough. But notice that Luke writes that it's not just the local scribe who shows up. It's Pharisees and teachers of the law from all over the province of Galilee. And not just the province of Galilee, but all over the province of Judea. And not just there, but also from the capital city of Jerusalem itself. So the bigwigs from Jerusalem, from the capital, make the four-day journey, because that's how long it took to get from Jerusalem to Capernaum. They make that four-day journey to find out more about this itinerant rabbi. So this was a big deal. To put that in perspective, this would be like, this would be like U.S. senators driving all the way from Washington, D.C., all the way to a tiny little insignificant city like 
Eukaipa to find out what's happening here. I mean, nothing against Eukaipa, it's just, it's no Loma Linda, am I right? No, I'm kidding, I'm kidding, actually. I love Eukaipa. You know, some of my best friends are Eukaipans. But very rarely does something happen in Eukaipa that is of national importance. But that's what's happening here. In the small town, Jesus is gathering such attention that the national religious leaders even come to find out what's happening. And the Bible says, Luke says, that the Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. Now, it doesn't say it here. It says it later on. But they're inside of a house. And what you have to understand about houses in Capernaum was is that they're not, they're, they were not very large, right? The largest excavated house in Capernaum has a span of about 18 feet. That's like the distance from here to here. So maybe there was room for like 50 people in there if you really jam-packed them in, you know, like if you crammed them in like a crowded subway in New York before the pandemic, right? They're shoulder to shoulder, where if, if, if a person sneezes on one side of, of, the, of the subway, it's like a chain reaction. You can feel it on the other side of the subway. So if they were standing that packed together, maybe you could fit 50 people. Am I making anybody uncomfortable here? No, you guys are ready for physical contact now, right? So maybe, 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 maybe you could fit 50 people there. But they weren't standing. What does the Bible say? The religious leaders... We're sitting there, which takes a lot more room. And I can't imagine that these religious leaders were sitting shoulder to shoulder. There's probably a lot of social distancing happening here, right? So there probably wasn't room for very many people outside of Jesus and the religious leaders. Maybe a few people crammed into the back, the rest of them overflowing outside. And there these religious leaders sit, dominating the space and judging Jesus. See, they had come to find out if the stories about Jesus were true, but they assumed that they weren't because this wasn't the first time a charismatic leader had gathered crowds and had tricked the gullible commoners into crowning him as the, the next Messiah. This wasn't the first time. It had, it had happened before. So they probably assumed Jesus was another one of these pretenders. After all, he was from Nazareth. Everybody knew that nothing good came from Nazareth. And so there they sat in their skepticism, judging Jesus. By their body language, they communicated, show us, and we might believe. Have you ever had to present before a hostile crowd before? You ever had to do that? Super uncomfortable. There's a reason why there are things called home court advantage, right? So Jesus must have felt like Jesus must have felt like LeBron James in the Boston Garden, right? Hostile crowd. He must have felt like Kanye West at a Taylor Swift concert. Hostile crowd. He must have felt like the Pope at an Adventist GC session, <laughs> hostile crowd. So he's surrounded by this hostile crowd, and then all of a sudden, these men show up. 
who are desperate to believe. Verse 18 reads, And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. You know, during those times, people slept on mats. So it's highly likely that he's being carried to Jesus on the very bed that he's been living in since he was paralyzed. So this bed that was once his prison becomes his vehicle towards freedom. 19 continues. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and led him down with his bed through the tiles into the mist before Jesus. Notice that this crowd, including the religious leaders, they create a barrier that separate this man from Jesus. And I wonder, do we ever separate people from Jesus? By our cynicism, our skepticism, our selfishness, do we ever keep people from the only person who is able to heal them? Do we? That's what's happening here. The religious leaders create a physical barrier that keeps this man from getting to Jesus, but these men will not be deterred. So they climb onto the roof, break through the tiles, and lower their friend to Jesus. And verse 20 reads, And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. Again, Jesus doesn't just heal this man's body. He forgives his sin. Because he knew that what this man needed was not just a mending of his body. He needed a complete restoration of his soul. So how does this man receive restoration? How does this man place, him in a pos- place himself in a position where he can be healed? What does Luke write? He says, Jesus said, man, your sins are forgiven you when he saw their, what? Faith. When he saw their faith. See, faith is the first step toward freedom from sin. Can I say that again? Faith is the first step toward freedom from sin. After the Holy Spirit has convicted us of our need to be healed from sin, faith is the first step toward healing from sin. Faith is what heals us. Faith is what makes us whole. So let me explain what I mean by faith. Because sometimes it can feel like a sort of nebulous term right? Faith is simply actionable trust in God. Actionable trust in God. It's trusting God enough that we're willing to take an action based on that trust. See, that's what these men did. They trusted that Jesus could heal their friend, so they broke through tiles, there's the action, to get their friend to Jesus. Actionable trust in God. And that kind of trust is crucial. Because if you remember, the very first sin, Adam and Eve committed the very first sin because they lacked trust in God. See, they trusted themselves. They trusted the serpent more than they trusted God. So what's happening in this story, and this is really cool, 
What's happening in the story is the reversal of the very first sin. See, Adam and Eve, they moved from a place of trust to mistrust, from, from dependence on God to independence from God. But these men move in the opposite direction. They move from mistrust to trust, from independence to dependence on God. And because of that action, that choice to have faith, this man is, is healed and his sins are forgiven. Faith is the first step toward freedom from sin. And that principle is really the foundation of every 12-step program out there. See, all of them begin with the same three steps. And these three steps, they really describe what faith is. Let me take a look. The three steps of every 12-step program is, one, we admitted we are powerless over our addictions or sin. We're powerless over our sin. Then two, we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. And then based on that belief, based on that faith, number three, we made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. There's the action step. That's faith. And that's exactly what these men do. They realize that they're powerless. They recognize that Jesus is powerful. So they rest in Jesus' care. Because of that step of faith, this man is freed from sin and his soul is made whole. Faith is the first step toward freedom from sin. Verse 25 continues, and immediately the man rose up before them, picked up what he had been lying on, and went home glorifying, glorifying God. See, everybody in that room was broken. Every single one of them, including the religious leaders, they all could have been healed by Jesus, but only one of them was. Only one man left that room whole because he had faith in Jesus. Faith is the first step toward freedom from sin. So our journey to escape from sin does not begin by just trying really, really, really hard not to sin, right? Because faith is the first step which means that as our faith in God grows stronger, our sin's hold over us grows weaker. As our faith grows bigger, our sins get smaller. And our faith grows as we begin to realize how good and great God really is. You know, the reason why Adam and Eve didn't trust God God was because they didn't fully realize how good God was. The reason why these Pharisees didn't trust Jesus was because they didn't realize fully how great Jesus was, that he was actually God. So if we want to shrink our sins, we have to grow our God. We have to grow our perception of who God is. We have to, we have to, we have to realize how great and good God is. And that happens as we spend time with him. See, it's not that God is a small God. God is a great big God. 
So the more time we spend with him, the more we realize we appreciate who he is. You know, I've, I've read through my fair share of resumes in my life. And what I've begun to realize is that there are some people who look better on paper than they do in person. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. God is not one of those people. The more we get to know God, the better he gets. So our faith in God will grow if we simply spend time with him. If we learn about him through scripture. If we talk to him regularly through prayer. If we follow him through difficult circumstances and then come out the other side aside amazed at how he came through for us. The better we get to know God, the better he becomes. And so if we want to shrink our sin, then we have to get, him know, get to know him better and grow our God. And this is important for all of us because all of us have sin inside. And we know we have sin inside because there's something that's just not right with us. Maybe it's a temper that we can't control. Maybe it's an addiction that we can't stop. Maybe, maybe it's a habit that we can't let go. Something, something, we all have something that's just not right with us. Something that we want to let go, something that we've tried to let go, but we can't because we're broken. But the good news is freedom is available to us through faith because faith is the first step toward freedom from sin. So as our faith grows bigger, our sins grow smaller. So if you want to shrink your sins, you got to grow your God. Spend time with him and let him show you how good and great he can be. Let me share how I've experienced this in a little way in my life. Several years ago when uh, our family, our family was going through a stressful time in our lives. We had just had our second child and my wife and I, we were still learning what it meant to be good parents and in the midst of all that, we decided to move. We moved to a different town, to a different church, to a different job, to a different home. A lot of change happening. And it started to wear on me. And I found myself having a shorter fuse. Nothing major, nothing that most people probably even noticed. But I did. I found myself getting more impatient, more on edge. And I'm not proud to admit that a few times I just, I lost it. I got really angry. And one of those times became a wake-up call for me. I realized that this was not the person that I wanted to be. And so God used that experience to draw me into a deeper relationship with him. But what's so fascinating to me about that experience is that God didn't just immediately take away that impatience. No, instead, he invited me to just spend more time with him. Nothing big. I mean, just little things like begin my day with prayer. Ask for God's guidance before or sometimes in the middle of stressful situations. 
And slowly, slowly, God used those, those small steps to help me see him for the good and great God he was. And I know that's a weird thing for a pastor to say, that I didn't realize how good and great he was. I should have already known that. But there is something different from knowing that theoretically and seeing that live out in your own daily life. And I began, by depending on him, I began to realize that I was, I didn't need to be in control of my life. That God was in control of my future. And that was incredibly freeing. And slowly, slowly, my, my impatience lessened. I felt less on edge. See, as God grew bigger, my sins grew smaller. I don't know. I don't know what manifestation of sin you're struggling with in your life, but I do know this. There is freedom available for you. Because faith is the first step toward freedom from sin. So as our faith grows bigger, our sins grow smaller. So if you want to shrink your sin, then grow your God. Spend time with him. And you may be surprised at how good and great God truly is. Find more podcasts, videos, church events, and how you can support the Loma Linda University Church at lluc.org.